Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by Andrew Wynn, who is a founder of a company called Shelter. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me today. Shelter is a home maintenance startup. Uh, It was not around for a very long time on its own. Uh, Just within a year of being in business, the company was acquired by Hippo Insurance. Uh, The company was based in San Francisco, but you are not from the Bay Area. You're from Indiana. What brought you to San Francisco? That's right. Um... I am from Indiana, and after college, I went to high school and college in Indiana. Um, after college, I actually spent two years in the Peace Corps, which was a really amazing experience, um, both for the uh, you know work I was able to do and people I was able to meet, but it also allowed me to take a step back and look at everything happening in the world. Um, and I saw very quickly and easily that San Francisco was definitely where all the most exciting stuff was happening and where all my smartest friends were going. So. It was a really easy decision to, to decide to move to San Francisco after my time in the Peace Corps. So when you came to SF, you've worked uh, for a bit at Levi's, uh, so a huge corporation. Uh, then you got your foot in the door into tech with Instacart. You were one of the early uh, employees, I believe, uh, one of the within the 30 employees at the company, which now has over 100,000 uh, employees. So it's a, it's a very big success story in the tech world. Uh, you also worked for a little while at Looker, uh, which was acquired by Google, recently also Unicorn. Uh, so you, you kind of have experience working at different sizes of, of companies, anything from like a very early stage startup that, uh, that was on the brink of scaling uh, to huge corporations. Why did you decide to become a founder and start your own company? Yeah, um, the early days of Instacart were, I didn't realize at the time, like you said, it was my first sort of real tech job. So I came, came to Levi's because they hired me sight unseen from West Africa. So I was like, great, I get to move to San Francisco and I have a job, win-win. Um, I worked there for a few months and realized like it would be crazy to work here with all this really fun stuff happening. Um, my roommate at the time had actually just joined Instacart um, even earlier, obviously, than I had and was nagging me to come and work there and work with him. And I was like, oh, it'd be so weird if we work together and live together. Um, so I moved out and then on a Friday. And then on the Monday, I started working at Instacart. So we pretty much saw each other every day for a few years in a row. Um, and the early days at Instacart were just amazingly fun. Um, we were figuring out problems as they went. We had you know huge amounts of autonomy. Um, and for your first sort of real job, that was a really incredible experience. Also, like everything we were doing had a real impact on our customers and our partners and our shoppers. And as a 24 year old, that's super valuable. You know, most jobs you don't actually, you know, the joke I always said was like, at Levi's, not even the CEO could get Levi's to stop, you know, sewing buttons on jeans. Whereas at Instacart, I had a huge amount of, you know, rel- relatively huge amount of control. So um, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and then obviously I went, as that company grew, um, that was a great experience to see how things evolve and change and, and you learn so much without even realizing it. Um, I went to Looker, uh, uh, which is a friend's company and worked with them. It was a, also a really great learning experience. I didn't 
enjoy enterprise as much as I enjoyed consumer. Um, and so after a little while at Looker, I realized like, well, what was the most fun I had in my career? It was an early stage consumer company. Um, and that's, you know, being Instacart. Um, and that's what prompted us to sort of look at potential early stage consumer companies to start along with my co-founder, who is also uh, an early employee at Instacart. So after Looker, when, when you guys decided to start Shelter, were you, were you and Praveen, your co-founder, were you guys in a situation where you were essentially, you, you knew that you wanted to start a company, it was just a matter of finding the right idea? Or was it more, you know, you had maybe somewhere back in, in the back of your head, the idea of starting a company, but you, um, you, you had the notion of starting a company, it just maybe would have been a cool thing to do, but then you came across this idea, which, which made sense and it kind of pushed you both to to get your jobs and go ahead and, and, and start this company. So was it more kind of the, is it, for, for what it sounds like to me is that you guys were set on starting a company, it was just a matter of, of finding the right idea. Is that, is that a right assumption? Sort of. I think uh, we, we realized we didn't, we didn't necessarily know we wanted to start a company, but when, that be, when we realized what we wanted to work on, it became very obvious that we should. So, you know, after, well, I was at Looker, after Looker, I was, talking to other companies and interviewing with other consumer companies and small companies. And all of them were, you know, interesting and they felt okay. And then simultaneously, as this was all happening, I had this huge problem at our own house um, with essentially a maintenance issue of a blocked drain causing thousands of dollars of water damage and our water heater wasn't working and all these little things. And I was like, wait, this could be it, right? This is a really annoying problem. It's so crazy that our houses where we, you know, either spend a lot in rent or spend a lot on, you know, in payments on, um, are these aren't as ma- maintained as well as if you have a car as a car or your health or your teeth or your pet, right? And they're these huge financial assets. And so um, as soon as that problem sort of clicked, then it became very obvious that we should actually start a company around this. And that would sort of solve both the personal problems we were having around like trying to find a job that we wanted, as well as this market problem that we saw. Um, and Praveen was in a similar place. He was at House Party um, and you know, was, I think, the first engineer at House Party. Um, and as that company grew, he was sort of similarly looking to do something really early stage again. Um, and he had experienced these same home maintenance types of issues and problems with his parents' house back in New Jersey. And as soon as we talked about it, it was like, Yes, this is a big problem, and yes, this is a problem I want to solve right now. Mm-hmm. So you you guys both had personal pain points, uh, and that was pretty much the birth of shelter. How did you go from uh, "I have this problem" uh, to "Is there a market here"? So what, what was the what was the kind of the validation of the idea process that you guys went through? Yeah, so we were you know in our sort of naive early days, we're like wow, look at this amazing you know this problem, it's so big, and then we started talking to people, and we realized it's, it's you know it. It's both good and bad. We started realizing that everyone had this problem, which means there's a big, you know, opportunity. As soon as we would say, like, hey, we're starting a company to work on home services and maintenance, people would immediately stop us and tell us, you know, like, oh, this one time or I had this terrible experience with or, oh, my gosh, you will never believe this type stories. And so we realized pretty quickly that, you know, this is a huge demand. Um, And so we just needed to think of a really smart, new, novel way to help solve some of these problems. And our focus was always on preventing the issues from happening in the first place, rather than just making the resolution process more easy. So, you know, it'd be like, we, we tried to focus on, we use cars as an analogy a lot. Um, 
trying to like be the oil change and the car service for your home rather than the tow truck or the repair shop when something uh, is broken. We want to help you as a homeowner or a renter um, avoid those issues from ever happening in the first place. Right. And I, I mean, that, that really makes a lot of sense to me. I think, you know, most, most, most of the, mostly how people look at their homes, especially within the context of maintenance and repairs is mostly reactive rather than proactive. And uh, you guys took the, the preventative approach. Uh, when you were starting out, was there any direct competition? Were there any companies that were focusing on the preventative rather than the, the reactive side of home maintenance? Yeah, there's certainly um, is competition. There's both, there, there's companies doing it, right? There's um, a lot of small, what I would call boutique companies that focus on, normally for higher end homes that focus on home preservation or, or facilities maintenance. Um, there are, you know, there are some other tech companies that were doing things similar, but less deliberate about um, preventative and more, yeah, like you said, reactive. And I think the reason for this is not because it's a particularly novel idea. People understand the benefit of preventative maintenance, but because the go-to-market is slightly more challenging because ultimately, you know, everyone who's taken a behavioral economics course knows that humans aren't rational. And so even though we conceptually understand preventative maintenance is a good idea, we're probably not going to pay for it early on. And so even if another company thought about, oh, preventative maintenance is good, they were probably getting more of their business and doing more business on the reactive, which as you can imagine, sort of, that's where you, you end up gravitating. So we saw that happening um, and had to think about ways to sort of hack the go-to-market where we could get consumers to adopt preventative without, you know, getting them to necessarily like pay up front or um, buy into this preventative thing without, you know, giving them a painkiller right away. That's a, that's a pretty interesting concept. I mean, if, if you're going, um, if, if people are thinking about home maintenance more in a reactive way, and that's, that's the way that you know, every, most people are used to thinking about fixing their home uh, rather than kind of preventing uh, what's what's happening, uh, preventing a potential issue, especially if it's if it's far away. So I would imagine when you guys were uh, were going into the market, was the, there there was probably had to be a degree of education that would have to be involved with kind of teaching people that there's different ways of doing this. Like, was there an educational component to uh, how you guys entered the market and how you guys were um, interacting with your with potential customers? Yeah, so education was really the first thing we tried of getting people to, you know, adopt a preventative maintenance solution. Um, so the first, you know, handful of customers we got early on, sort of direct to consumer, was really about educating them of the importance and explaining that and like helping them understand that spending a dollar here could save you a hundred in the future. Um, that said, it's still like even if people get it rationally, it's still a harder thing to sell preventatively. And again, going back to the car analogy, like auto manufacturers have gotten really good at getting people to service their cars, primarily because they make it really annoying if you don't, right? So they've done a really good job of educating people. Everyone knows, you know, I would be, most people know rather that you should change your oil every three months or 3000 miles. I don't know where that came from. Um, I don't know if that was a huge marketing campaign by the auto manufacturers or whatever, but like, people are aware of that. So that's their education component. And then there's also just like your car tells you, right? Like you, I need servicing. I need servicing the little wrench on the dashboard. So we, we focus first on the 
um, education piece and realize like, hey, this is actually going to be really uh, hard to scale and like it's expensive to educate people, whether that's through customer acquisition or just other types of uh, mechanisms for educating. So we started looking at potentially other ways to acquire or to you know convince customers or get customers to adopt much more similar to um you know the again in the car analogy like a dealership calling you so we we found people who have a vested interest in your home to who who also want to make sure it's well maintained and there aren't issues and you're happy with your house um we we, we started identifying people that way and started to see if they would be interested essentially in white labeling or co-branding a service so that they're able to offer home maintenance while also sort of protecting their interest and transacting with a customer who they already know right. and who already knows them. So was the initial concept, was it mostly like B2B focused? Were, were you guys going after insurance companies mostly or was there a B2C component as well? Um, it was, we started, you know, our, our earliest customers were B2C um, as you can imagine, but we're not, I'm not a marketer, Praveen's not a marketer. And again, like a lot of our experience was formed from the early days of Instacart. And we were at Instacart when Instacart didn't work with grocery stores and didn't have partners to when we started working with grocery stores and white labeling, you know, delivery solutions for, you know, back then companies like Whole Foods and Target and all those things. And we, we saw then, you know, how that worked at Instacart of like, wow, it's really easy to get customers if Whole Foods is telling its our, its existing customers to use delivery.wholefoods.com, which happened to be Instacart. Right. So we were like, you know, we can spend all this money and we're bad at marketing and we don't know how to do it and we don't have any money really uh, to try to acquire. And it's a hard thing to sell because we talked about it, you know, earlier. Like you have to educate customers direct to consumer, or we can just find these vested interests and go sort of B two B to C. And that's what we decided to do. Just it. it made more sense to us logically um, and was an easier, we believed, um, go to market. And it just made a lot of sense for every party. It made sense for the person providing it because they got the company providing it. It made sense for the consumer and it made sense for us. So we became a sort of three, three or four-sided marketplace rather than just a direct-to-consumer. Mm-hmm. And was was the long-term plan to keep the consumer side around or was it, you know, was the consumer a way of you guys starting off and then eventually you you went to the uh, kind of the B2B vested interest companies such as insur- home insurance companies uh, and was the plan to kind of focus mostly on B2B side of things in the long term or keep the B2B and the, and the consumer side as well? And the plan was to, to follow the customers. Uh, so, you know, we, we quickly realized we were able to get a lot more customers very quickly um, and still with favorable economics and, you know, business fundamentals through the B2B2C approach. So we pretty quickly doubled down on that um, you know, we looked at hiring marketers for a direct-to-consumer. Uh, we looked at the CACs and we realized like, hey, actually, it makes, all, you know, it makes a lot of sense to a B2B2C, um, at least right now. And um, our horizon at that point was always sort of next month or, next, you know, two months from now, a year from now, maybe, right? Those are sort of high, you know, a year was a really long time. Um, and so our primary focus was always B2B2C just because it worked really well. Mm-hmm. How much of an influence did Instacart, did your experience and Praveen's experience at Instacart have uh, on Shelter overall? I mean, you guys met at Instacart. Uh, the Instacart is a marketplace, so is Shelter. Yeah. Uh, you did mention that. I mean, there, there's there was a lot of kind of takeaways uh, that you that you learned from from Instacart. So, w- would you say that was uh, 
I, I guess even from on, on a, for, for people that are looking to start a new company, I think the typical advice that they get is oftentimes, you know, go work at, a, at another startup, yep. get some experience, and then maybe start something of your own, especially if it's a startup that is fast growing. And certainly in your case, Instacart was an extremely fast growing startup. You were, you know, like, like I mentioned before, one of the 30 employees when the company now has over 100,000 employees. Um, how, how relevant was the experience at Instacart for when you actually went on to start your own company? Yeah, it's the experience of Instacart is hugely relevant and and incredibly helpful. Um, And so, you know, having both and there's sort of three things in that there is working at a company that was a startup that is small and grows very fast um, is one thing, just like how the organization works, how to manage things, how to be comfortable with ambiguity, what to worry about, what not to worry about. just like a general startup advice, Instacart was a great example of that because it was is such a fast growing and successful startup. The second area in which Instacart was hugely helpful is um, the business models are not dissimilar, right? So Instacart is a multi-sided marketplace. Shelter is a mar- multi-sided marketplace. Instacart acquires customers uh, in some part through partnerships, as does Shelter. Um, so, you know, the, the experience of working within those models, how to do the BD, what the contract should look like, uh, how to manage multi-sided marketplaces, what metrics you should manage, like the specifics were very helpful. And then I would say the third component in which Instacart specifically was very helpful to us is the people, right? Like the network and the um, support we got on an ongoing basis and just the people we learned and we met and learned from at Instacart uh, and continue to speak with and learn from uh, was the really valuable, is, is probably the most valuable part. So um, that I can't understate enough of the, the team there is, is incredibly strong, um, incredibly uh, willing to help and support and foster the sense of entrepreneurship in the sort of extended, we, we jokingly call it the Instacartel um, of people who have gone on uh, to you know, left Instacart and gone on to to new adventures, um, but still being able to work with you know Brandon and Max, the co-founders and the people who run the operations team, as we run into questions like, how do we onboard fifty contractors remotely? They've done it right. They're onboarding hundreds of thousands of contractors remotely, so um, they they can they were able and really willing to help us and just sort of be thought partners in all of it. Yeah, and I mean th- this is a. Uh... This is something that we see happen time and time again. Anytime there's a there's a successful company, a big exit, uh, it's not only kind of the founders or the the PayPal mafia esque kind of people that go on to start new companies, but it's also kind of the the first hundred thousand employees that that have a massive influence on on the previous success that then go on to to start something of their own. Um, about six months after you guys started with Shelter, uh, this is, I guess, the summer of 2019, you raised a seed round. And it was a, it was a pretty large uh, round. It was, uh, I believe, about $3 million. Um, how was it fun? How, how did you find fundraising as a first-time startup founder? Um, yeah, we, we raised a yeah, $3.2 million seed round um, a few, yeah, six months or so after we had uh, started Shelter. Um, it was a really interesting experience. Again, like we learned a ton. Um, it is stressful, but fun. It is, uh, it can be very uh, dis- in, you know, disenchanting when you hear no all day or people tell you why your idea is not going to work or whatnot. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, you also find people who really support and believe in you and understand what the business is, the goal of the business, and you just click with and connect with. And um, I think we had, again, similarly, had a lot of advice from people who were able to help us uh, understand the fundraising process. I think if we had didn't have our networks of people who had done this recently, it would have been a much different experience and outcome. But because we had people who were able to help us, not just, you know, connect us to founders, but I mean, VCs, but think about like, this is how you should run your process. This is what your milestones should be. This is what, you know, XYZ should look like. That that really helped us. So, you know, we had people who Praveen had previously worked with, like Rene Dulancage. Um, we had my friend Misha Esipov, who is the CEO of Nova Credit, who, you know, raised a seed round in an A and B, you know, sort of few months they were just a couple of years ahead of us. So he was really relevant and able to, to sort of share how to, how to approach it. Um, so we had a lot of help, um, which sort of mitigated the first time founder uh, fundraising right. issue um, or, or lack of knowledge. Um, but I definitely for any next company I found, I'll be glad that I've done it once before. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean, I think as a, as a first-time founder, you did definitely do a good job on kind of on the seed round, three million in two thousand nineteen. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a pretty solid uh, round size. Uh, and as as a first-time founder, of course, the the end result of the company you guys got acquired uh, within just one year of being in business. That's a that's a very kind of quick exit. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how did the kind of acquisition with Hippo Insurance happen? Uh, why did you guys decide to sell? Sure. Yeah, happy to talk about that. So. Um, we started working with Hippo really early on. So as we started going into this B two B two C approach, we looked at who are all the interested, you know, who who are all the people that have an interest in your home, and then who are the startups playing in that space. So uh, you know, there's things like realtors, there's lenders, there's sort of alternative fine uh, alternative ownership arrangements, um, and then there's obviously home insurers. So we, we looked at who has the greatest stake in the game uh, of making sure your home is well-maintained. A realtor doesn't really, right? They, they, once you sell the home, like once they sell the home, they're sort of, they've gotten their money. Um, lenders are like big and old and slow. Um, and ultimately they have, you know, collateral and they don't, they're not going to, they're not going to pay out if you have a, have a fire necessarily. So we looked at insurance and alternative ownership models. Uh, this is like when Zero Down was just getting started. Um, this what there's also Unison. So we started working with the startups in all of those spaces. And Hippo is obviously the um, startups, obviously because they're the easiest to work with, right? Like working with a big insurance company takes years and years. But Hippo, we could sort of just show up at their offices in Mountain View and annoy them until they were would take a meeting with us. Right. Um, and so. I think actually, you know, the first contact I ever had with Hippo was um, with somebody with a friend who used to work with the head of business development. I like called him in November of 2018 when we shelter didn't even exist. I was like, "Hey, what if this thing existed?" And he's like, "Sounds great. Call me when it exists." Uh, sort of blew me off and you know missed a couple of meetings and all that stuff. And then you know a few months later, I called him again. I'm like, "Hey, this exists." And he's like, "What? Really?" Um, and so. We're like, yeah, it does. Let's let's work together. Obviously, we were sort of uh, probably overpromising a little bit as as startups 
should probably do. Um, but anyway, we got in the door and we started really working with them in the earliest stages of shelter. Um, so Hippo had a huge influence on both helping us understand how we can better serve insurance companies as well as their customers um, and just helping us a lot with like areas of expertise that we didn't have. So what's the best way to like market this to customers to drive adoption? How do we, you know, modify our scope of service to mitigate really expensive claims, things like that. Um, and so Hippo was always a very early partner and really the most important thing about Hippo is we didn't have to convince them of the importance of the idea. Hippo is a proactive insurance company. They were like, you know, the, sec the first meeting we had, we talked about it. And the second meeting, we talked about how we can do it and make it better. Whereas with other partners, we had to sort of explain the value prop and why it matters to them and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, Hippo was, yeah, the, the most engaged early adopter we had um, of, of Shelter and was just a, yeah, obviously continues to be, but back in the, in, when we were independent was the most integral partner we had in just improving our scope of services and product as well as um, giving it, you know, driving the customers to us. So you guys, they were a client of yours. Uh, how did you go from them being a client to like actual acquisition talks to like, okay, it's one thing, you know, for, for you to work with them as a client service provider kind of relationship versus um, them being an acquirer? Yeah. Um, I think because, you know, we had, a, we had a really atypical client service provider relationship because it wasn't like, here's the contract, do this. And then, you know, we'll talk every two weeks and we'll send you an invoice every month, right? It was, hey, what about this thing? And, you know, can we help with this or what about that? So they were very much a partner from day one, um, you know, to the point where like, they would like help us like, you know, improve the copy on our site and improve our SEO and this kind of stuff. It's like, that's not a contractual relationship, right? It was like, we want to win together. Um, and so the topic of um, acquisition came up and it wasn't, it wasn't so, um, it was just like, hey, we're already doing all this work together. We really enjoy working together. Our businesses are very, um, what's the word? Uh, like very, you know, have a lot of synergies and, and feed off each other and, and help one another. So maybe we should just formalize this. Um, and that's what sort of led to the, the discussion rather than a nuts and bolts, here's the contract, this is what it, it looks like um, type of discussion. It was much more organic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like there, there was a lot of kind of, there's, there's a close relationship between both companies. So in the long term, it made sense. Uh, if you, I know this is a hypothetical, but I mean, if you guys did not get acquired by Hippo, or if you turned down the offer, uh, what was the long-term vision that you and Praveen had for, for Shelter? Yeah. Um, so I guess one other thing to say is like the, the, the reason we ultimately decided to go with Hippo is like, we believe as much as they believed in us and that they were willing to acquire us, we believed in them, right? Like we think Hippo is, and continue to think more than ever, obviously, uh, that Hippo is really changing a very outdated, um, pretty inefficient, uh, not very tech-enabled business. And so we also wanted to like get behind that. And so had, had we not been acquired, I think we would have uh, felt that you know, we would have continued to work and, and scale shelter through partnerships, but it would have always felt a little, uh, I think, um, 
you know, we, we would have spent a long time convincing people why this is important and not as much time actually delivering on the product and solutions to customers. Um, and I think that would have been a little frustrating. Um, that's not to say we couldn't have done it and, and, you know, gone on to work with big insurance companies, but ultimately we thought the best thing for customers and the, the idea of preventative home maintenance was to immediately partner with a company who understands this, understands the value of it, and is willing to push and drive it forward rather than try to spend years and years convincing the market of that. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes sense. And I think you, you guys, I, I mentioned this a bit earlier on, is that Shelter was, it, it feels like to me, and I, I don't know, I'm not an expert in this space, but I mean, it feels like to me that you guys were sort of like pioneers in, in almost like this new market of preventative home maintenance. Um, what do you think, what does is, what is the future for home maintenance look like? Do you think there's going to be a shift towards more prevention, uh, do you, that, which you, know, you, you guys obviously played a big role in? Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts around that for kind of going forward? I think it'll continue. Um, I think it'll be enabled by smart devices, right? Uh, people's appliance, you know, as people continue to replace appliances and new appliances are developed, people's homes are telling them when they need help. So, you know, dishwashers now don't just break. They might tell you, hey, my filter is clogged, um, things like that. So I think the idea of, you know, preventative or sort of diagnostic home maintenance will continue to be pushed along. Um, I think the biggest issue in the home services market is not the customer problem. People get that, right? Like whether preventative or reactive, like people understand that homes need maintenance and that maintaining a home has requires work and costs money. Um, I see the biggest issue in the home services space broadly being um, availability of trained, uh, high quality service providers and labor. Um, you know, it's hard to find the average age of of tradespeople, plumbers, electricians, uh, heating and ventilation, you know, technicians is pretty old. They're probably in the fifties, high high fifties, low sixties average age, mm-hmm. and so they're sort of aging out. And there aren't a lot of people, be, you know, coming into these trades. So I think the biggest issue is going to be um, getting enough people to actually do all the work and. If you only have a finite amount of of labor able to do the work, it'll just sort of have to gravitate to reactive break fix. And so potentially the biggest threat to actually being able to manage things proactively and preventatively um, is could could just be the lack of of trained supply able to to help homeowners. Now you're you're with uh, with Hippo. Yeah. Uh, what's the plan for you going forward? Um, are you thinking of going back eventually to starting another company, or are you, are you thinking of laying low for a little bit? What What do you have in mind? Yeah. So we have a lot of work to do at Hippo. Um, you know, part of the part of the selling selling early is we're definitely not done, right? We we right. all we wanted a huge reason for selling was we actually accelerate everything where we want and are able to do. So now we have access to many more customers than we would have had before because we have all of Hippo's customers and all of their resources to help us acquire customers. Um, and so we are not done with, with Shelter at all. Um, we are still continuing to work on how do we make home maintenance as protective and proactive and preventative as possible? How do we help homeowners uh, avoid costly issues in their home, which saves them money and reduces stress. And you know, no one wants to deal with that. And it's also good for Hippo, right? If we can help a homeowner avoid a flood, which nobody wants, 
um, great. That, that's great for the homeowner. And it's also probably good for HIPPO because it, we don't have an insurance claim against it. Um, and so we're working on really scaling the, the operation within HIPPO, proving out a lot of these um, and, and sort of quantifiably demonstrating a lot of these benefits we can have on the insurance product. Um, and also just continuing to work with and, and serve our customers uh, and, and growing those every day. Um, obviously, things look a little bit different now because of the current coronavirus situation. So we've actually shifted to, uh, it, for the time being, a virtual model. So we have um, people who are able to have home, help homeowners with um, telemaintenance. So I'm having a problem with my water heater. It's making this weird sound. What is, what is it? Um, and we're able to sort of help you with that over video chat rather than invite someone to into your home when you don't know where they've been and illness. Um, and if you do have an issue, we we are able to you know send an emergency service provider if needed. Um, and we're sort of working on also just building out a this sort of virtual suite of products. Maybe it's a self-guided home checkup um, or it's just really helpful DIY um, uh, content to help people self-serve uh, shelter because of coronavirus and also um, just generally because it's a good product that is able to scale very quickly. Yeah, you mentioned about tele, telemaintenance sort of. So we're, we're seeing obviously telemedicine now is, is making a big push. Uh, when it comes to telemaintenance, do you think that, uh, do you think in the long term there is potential for telemaintenance to, uh, for, for a lot of the kind of the, the, the home maintenance things to be virtual rather than having somebody actually come to your house and fix them. And it, to me, it just feels like a lot of things that get, uh, that could be maintained or even repaired uh, around a house are, don't necessarily require like any sort of specialized, perhaps like knowledge or maybe specialized tools. Like a lot of the things like, okay, turn it back on, turn it off, turn it back on, turn this knob a little bit, try this, try that. And some right. of that, that can be just instructed over a call. Do you think uh, after the whole corona thing, after we're back to normal, do you think there is, uh, there's an opportunity for this sort of tele- uh, virtual telemaintenance side of home maintenance? A huge opportunity. And, you know, this is actually something we are working on independent of coronavirus and it's been accelerated rapidly because of it. But I think there's a huge opportunity. And we saw that because like, we weren't home maintenance experts when we started Shelter, but we obviously learned a ton. And a lot of the, as you mentioned, like a lot of the stuff in your house, it's not particularly complicated it's just unknown and so if we can help you with that um and, and sort of teach you or you know both teach you why it's important and also how to do it you can save money right and you can save stress um i think a lot of people have probably had the experience where they're like you said their dishwasher's not working or something and they call an appliance person and they show up two days later and they're three hours late and they don't take their shoes off and then they just like turn it off and on or like push like a three button reset and charge you 175 bucks, right? Like that's a bad experience. And we're trying to uh, help homeowners be able to do those things themselves, as well as other things that they could easily do, but probably don't know they need to do. Um, examples being like uh, replacing your furnace filter. Um, a lot of people don't realize that like, yeah, you should probably do that every, every six months, uh, at least maybe more if you're home more often or live in a place where you're using your, your furnace a lot. Um, and just giving people the resources to, to be able to do that um, and making it really simple for them. Andrew, uh, thank you very much for joining. 
Uh, I think you, you mentioned you guys have a lot of work to do with hippo. It's, it's important work. Uh, it looks like you guys are in kind of pioneering many different aspects of of, uh, of home maintenance, things that people are not aware of, and hopefully they kind of they will be aware of going forward. Uh, and if you do decide to to start your own company, I think if if there's any indication how if shelter is an indicator, I think your next company is going to be in good hands. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.